I don't know if you're like me and, and always misplacing things. Uh, whenever I do some DIY work, uh, there's this strange phenomenon that I can actually be working with a tool and set it down and I reach to get it just seconds later and it's gone. Uh, I've really never understood that, but that's the way it works. For folks like me, I found this great website this week. It's called Losers Weepers. It's a free online database. Uh, it was launched uh, in November last year. And it's full of lost and found items for you to search. Popular searches include things like personal accessories, electronics, toys, jewelry, clothing, people, if you've mislaid one of them, uh, baby equipment, animals, electric equipment, bags, luggage, etc., etc., etc. A couple of really moving stories, testimonials from the website. An engagement ring has been found. A widow has been reunited with her lost engagement ring. 67 years after she threw it into a field during a row with her fiancé. <laughs> Even though they subsequently made up, the ring was never found. However, Violet Boo's... This is true stuff. Violet Boo's grandson recently used a metal detector to locate the ring and present it to her. Violet, now 88, declared herself delighted and announced it was a great way to remember her husband Samuel who's passed away, and who was, in her words, a very nice man. I've not been able to find out whether he worked for the AA or not, but... Uh, and one other testimonial, a real shaggy dog story. You better start reaching for the Kleenex now, I'll tell you. This story features a dog by the name of Bernie, who completed a ten-month journey over the west coast of America before returning to his home to the delight of his owner, Pat. Bernie had managed to squeeze out of a parked car window while his owner visited friends. And despite a frantic search and many flyers, uh, there was no sign of him. There were sightings all over the west coast of America. And finally, a fellow dog lover spotted Bernie, bedraggled and sad-looking, only 14 miles away from his owner's house. They caught Bernie, and although his tag was corroded, they could just make out the phone number. Pat received the phone call she thought she'd never get and drove over immediately for an emotional reunion. This is gut-wrenching stuff, this. <laughs> he ran to her, crying and whining. The joy and gladness was intense, said Pat. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Doesn't it just get you? <laughs> Some of you are so heartless. Arms folded, faces like flint, never going to be touched. Anyway, we continue today um, the Good News of Great Joy for All People series and I've entitled the sermon simply Lost and Found. Luke 19 and verse 10. Let's open your Bibles there if you've not got them open. Open the Bibles. Uh, if it's a few Bibles you're using, remember it's 1053 is the page number. We're looking at... Uh, Luke 18:35 through 19:10. But I want to kind of flag up 19:10 as a text to carry us right on through the whole of what I say today, because I believe that it can uh, rightly be called Jesus' mission statement. Jesus Himself says, "For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost." And there we have it, um, very concise details. Uh, the whole of Jesus' ministry on earth summed up for us 
in his mission statement. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Here at Charlotte Chapel, our church's vision is to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and message of Christ. Uh, It's a great vision statement to have. But Jesus' vision was simply to seek and to save what was lost. That's what drove Jesus' ministry. That's what directed Jesus' ministry throughout his earthly uh, sojourn. It's very clearly the case um, in point in his ministry at the stage that we're dealing with today. Uh, Those of you who know the story uh, realize that Jesus is very close now to the time when he's going to be crucified. So for just over three years he's been driven by this purpose that he's here on earth to seek and to save lost people. He set his face like Flint, one writer tells us, towards Jerusalem, knowing full well what's about to happen to him. The hands of the chief priests and all the other religious and civil rulers. And I want to look in detail at the three characters in our reading. There's the blind beggar, there's the rich rogue, and there's the seeking saviour. So let's look first of all at that blind beggar, Bartimaeus. Uh, Luke 18, 35-43. It's uh, Mark that tells us in his gospel that the blind man's name is Bartimaeus. Uh, we can also deduce from Matthew's gospel that he's at least one of two beggars who sat at the roadside between two sites named Jericho. There's the old city of Jericho that lies in ruins and there's a new city just about a mile away where Herod the Great and his successors had built a lavish winter palace. As Jesus leaves the one Jericho site, uh, so according to Matthew, uh, and heads towards the other newer city, Bartimaeus is determined to meet him. Mark and Luke say that it's as Jesus enters Jericho that this incident happens. Matthew tells us as he leaves. Uh, And there's no inconsistency ever in Scripture. You just need to dig harder and and, and read it better. Uh, I've explained why there appears to be that strange inconsistency between the two sites in a mile long stretch the beggars would sit there asking for alms which was part of the obligation of those who followed uh, God through the worship in Judaism part of their duty was to give to those who had nothing and so you could um, not make a a great living at it but at least you could get the the means whereby you could sustain life uh, through begging and here are just some of the things that I think potentially could have held Bartimaeus back. And um, quirkily, I've alliterated them all with the letter C, just to help you forget them quickly. First of all, in verse 35, his condition. This man has a disability. Uh, Jesus is walking past, part of the crowds. He could have concluded that he couldn't do anything about it. And, And taken that sort of attitude, here I am, poor little old me, I can't unless someone does it for me. His condition could have been a hindrance to him experiencing Jesus' healing touch. The second thing there, also in verse 35, is that I've already alluded to, he made his living by begging. For us in our day and circumstance, it might be a social status or employment or unemployment. You know, my circumstances don't allow me to come to Jesus. My circumstances forbid me in some way or hinder me in some way 
from committing my life to Jesus to Him to be my Savior and for me to become fully involved in the life and work of the church. We can use many things as an excuse not to be fully involved and engaged with the man Jesus. He was surrounded by a large crowd. Verse 36. I've equated this to being, in our day, uh, something like the peer pressure that many of us feel is is a hindrance from putting our trust in Jesus, from committing our way to Him. This large crowd of people around us in the world. We've heard some of it from Angus this morning, going to school. There's, there's huge crowds of people saying, how can you possibly believe in God? When it's been proven beyond doubt that, that the universe came from this sort of uh, freakish chance happening and that it evolved through various stages and it's continuing to evolve still. Last Sunday evening we had John Lennox here who uh, was able to use all the powers of the intellect that he's been gifted with to show us that as Christians we don't need to be ashamed of the truth. The truth that we know from Genesis that God created all that, that has been created. And not just the physical stuff that you can see and, and examine by scientific means. God created all the unseen stuff. Not just the angels, although that's part of his creation. But he created all the unseen stuff of the, the ability that you have to think and what is thought and consciousness. We considered some of these things last week. Christians, you don't have to be ashamed of the truth you know that sets you free. And yet we can use that, surrounded by the crowd of influence in our day. Like Bartimaeus, we may have been influenced by that. As um, he's determined to come to Jesus and, and is, is shouting out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowds rise up and many people rebuked him. And so, as with us, he had his critics. Bartimaeus, don't make that noise. And that was Tarzan actually, but uh, don't make that noise. Don't shout out. Don't shout out for help. Let's keep it quiet. He faced opposition. Are you here this morning and there is someone opposing you? You want to become a Christian. You want to be more fully committed as a Christian. But you've got your critics. A husband, a wife, children, parents, work colleagues, people that you study alongside. You're frightened to come out and just to lay down the whole thing because they are in your crowd, you're facing opposition. You'd love to be a believer, but there's something in the way of it. And then there's another C that potentially could have held them back, and it's actually the invitation to come. Jesus said, call him, verse 40. You know, that invitation to come to Jesus can actually be a means whereby we're hindered. We've looked for the Lord, we've sought him. I remember speaking to a work colleague many years ago when I worked in industry. This man was desperately searching. Desperately wanted to know the truth. He was caught up um, with a whole lot of influence in his life, not least his lifestyle uh, regarding alcohol. Uh, He was involved in Freemasonry with all the implications and the darkness that that had brought to cloud out the reality of the truth that wanted to penetrate his life. And I shared Jesus with him fairly consistently over a long period of time and prayed for this man. And then one night, we were on night shift together and I said, Donald, don't you just want to... Wouldn't you just trust Jesus tonight to save you from your sin? And he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And he said, I want to. I want to. 
I want to have what you have. I know my life's not right and I want it. I said, well, just come on then. Here, I'll lead you in a prayer. Just, just trust him as your saviour and let him take care of all the implications for you. And he stood on the brink of surrendering his life to Jesus and finally said, I can't. I can't. See, even after Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is calling him, he said, no, I can't come. You know, there's another sea that um, it's not found there in Luke, but I just want to make reference to it because it's actually quite critical in Bartimaeus' experience. Mark tells us uh, in his gospel that in his haste to get to Jesus, that Bartimaeus threw his cloak away. And again, that just maybe sounds like an overcoat to you. It isn't. For the beggar in ancient Palestine, that cloak represents his total security in earthly possessions. That cloak means everything to him. It's his tent, it's his bed, it's his purse, it's his dwelling place, it's absolutely everything to him. Maybe you've seen some of the homeless people here in Edinburgh. And uh, for those that are genuinely homeless, maybe all that they have is there on the pavement with them. Would they just stand up and walk away from that? Most unlikely. That's all they have. They're going to take it with them. And so Bartimaeus' cloak can represent for a total security in earthly possessions. Would you come and have Jesus be your saviour today? But, but, well, I've got this huge house. I've got this great job. I've got millions of pounds in the bank. I'm so secure in earthly possessions. I'd love to trust God, but the implications of just abandoning that in order to get to Jesus just seems too much. You know, there's an interesting conversation. I just love this dialogue that goes on between Bartimaeus and Jesus. When he gets there, there's a potential further complication. Sorry about the scene just there. In verses 41, first part of it. When Bartimaeus is brought to Jesus, Jesus asks this question. What do you want me to do? I think there's a little bit of a human element that we can um, speculate on here. Can you imagine the Apostle Peter, uh, always outspoken, always observing the obvious, kind of coming to Jesus and leaning gently into him and going <coughs> mm, he's blind <laughs> Jesus says what do you want me to do for you why that obvious question is Jesus making him articulate his answer just to strengthen the man's faith or is it more importantly that the crowd might acknowledge what's actually happening here well, either way, the blind man simply replies, Lord, I want to see. Again, it's Mark who uses a much more personal address when he records what Bartimaeus said. Because in Mark he says, Rabboni. A word that's only found twice in the New Testament. The only other occasion it's used is in the garden after Jesus has been raised from the dead. 
And Mary comes to the garden and thinking that he's the gardener uh, enters into a dialogue with Jesus. And Jesus raised from the dead and Mary not recognized him speaks her name and says Mary. To which she says Rabboni. It means more than Rabbi. Rabbi in the general sense simply means a teacher. Rabboni means my teacher. And so the other gospel writer says that Bartholomew says Lord. I want to see there's already an acknowledgement of who Jesus is and what he's becoming in this man's life. Bartimaeus believes and he receives his healing. I simply ask this question. Do we, do you, have the courage or the faith to pray a prayer something like, Lord, I don't have this, whatever this is, but I know you do, and I want it. Maybe you realize that you don't have Jesus, but you want him. Maybe you don't have the assurance of eternal life, but you want it. Maybe you know you haven't received forgiveness of sin, but you know you need to be forgiven for your sin. Jesus met Bartimaeus at the point of his need, and the result wasn't simply physical healing, marvelous and miraculous that that was, which takes us to the eighth and the final C. In verse 43, we see that there is a commitment to follow. Immediately he received the sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Again, just looking at what's inferred there, just think about Bartimaeus, blind for who knows how long, maybe from birth, maybe never seen another living soul. Who's the first person he sees? He opens his eyes and standing right in front of him. It's no less than Jesus. Wow. He sees Jesus. And his following was the result of seeing his Savior. Most commentators would agree that at the end of verse 43, that it means that Bartimaeus not only walked with Jesus along the road up to Jerusalem on that day, but that he became a real follower, a disciple, a lifelong learner of Jesus, unlike the nine of the ten lepers in chapter 17 who were healed by Jesus, but never came to faith. And so that's Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. Secondly, in the story, we have Zacchaeus, the rich rogue. Uh, Luke 19, verses 1 to 9. This whole crowd of people that's moving up to Jerusalem, thousands of people in the crowd, no doubt, heading up for the Passover, uh, continue a short distance further down the road, and there Jesus stops under a tree, and he looks up and he calls Zacchaeus to come down. Some of you might be thinking, well, did Jesus know Zacchaeus from a previous encounter? Not so. Look at verse 3, where it says, He wanted to see who Jesus was. They'd never met before. He wanted to know who this Jesus was. Was Jesus, again, uh, relying on that divinely inspired insight that he, that he had on at least one other occasion before? Do you remember how Jesus acknowledged, uh, how Jesus' knowledge surprised Nathaniel when they had first met in John 1? It says, When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching in whom there is nothing false how do you know me Nathaniel asked Jesus answered I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you you know the reality is that Jesus knows all of us and for some of us it's comforting but for others it might be disturbing to think that he actually knows everything about you he knows everything about us As Jesus seeks the lost and saves them 
from the punishment and penalty of sin, he does not work in isolation from his Father or the Holy Spirit. John 5, verses 19 through 20, Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Son, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than this. And then two verses from John 14. First of all, verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. In verse 24 in John 14. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And in the work of salvation we see the Father working, we see the Spirit working, and we see Jesus, the Son of God, working to bring us eternal life. Again, as I read through this story just this last week, I wonder, I wonder if Zacchaeus might even be the tax collector referred to in the previous story. Remember that parable that we had um, in verses 9 through 14 of the, the tax collector who went into the temple and the Pharisee who went in? The Bible doesn't say it. It's, it's entirely my speculation. But I wonder, this, this name means righteous one. But up to this point, he's not been living up to his name, Zacchaeus, the righteous one. The other people who lived in and around Jericho would certainly not have thought of him as a righteous person. Not only did he collect taxes from his own people, which I would have thought would have been unpopular enough, but he also worked for the unclean Gentile Roman occupiers. Uh, these tax collectors, were notoriously well known for their overcharging and the exploitation of their own people. And remember, he's not only just an ordinary Joe Bloggs tax collector, he's the chief, or at least a chief of tax collectors. He's a bigwig when it comes to exploitation. And although Zacchaeus was a traitor and a thief in the eyes of his own people, he was a precious lost sinner in the eyes of Jesus. And you know your own heart. You know the things that you imagine can hinder you from coming to Jesus. You've got all the excuses about why you wouldn't trust Him as Savior and Lord. Maybe one of them is, well, you don't know all the bad things that I've done, Rodney. Or you wouldn't say that I could be saved. Well, God knows all the bad things you've done. God knows all the bad things you've ever thought. God knows all the bad things you will still do. He loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for your sin. And all you need to do is to trust in him. Consider the transformation that Jesus made to this man. First of all, his behavior changed, verses 2 through 4. John Calvin said, Curiosity and simplicity are a sort of preparation for faith. Why are you here this morning? You come because you're curious? Are you looking for something? Are you looking for Jesus but don't know how to find him? certainly true in Zacchaeus' case. It's uh, most unusual for a man in the Middle East, especially a wealthy government administrator, to run. But according to Luke, Zacchaeus not only ran up in the street, but he climbed the tree. So out of character. So out of what was good in that society and acceptable. But in order to see Jesus, he was prepared to change his behavior and breach the normally accept at social conventions. I wonder, are you? 
Would you do anything? You're a lost person. You don't know Jesus. You don't know God. Would you do anything in order to find Him? Because I would encourage you to do that. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, no matter uh, how others might view your behavior, you want to be saved, then you need to do what you need to do in order to be saved. As Zacchaeus seeks to know who Jesus is, in verse 5 we also see that his perspective altered. The man who thought that he was seeking Jesus discovered that Jesus was actually seeking him. The Bible tells us that because of their inherent sinful human nature, that no one actually seeks God unless he comes and seeks them. No one seeks God unless God comes and seeks them. Romans 3 verses 10 through 12 says, as it is written, there is no one righteous. And you know, for those of us who might think ourselves righteous in our own eyes, that's a real smack in the face. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I'm a respectable person. And the Bible says you're a sinner that falls short of the grace of God and there is nothing you can do to save yourselves and be the servant of God's heaven. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Is that word challenging your position in life this morning? Is that making you uncomfortable? Is it making you angry? God is speaking to your heart. Back in Genesis, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they hid from God. That's the natural inclination of the sinner. Afraid to come out of the bushes where they would be seen, yet God came and sought them. What incredible hope that gives for you and I this morning. The Bible doesn't tell us how God had prepared Zacchaeus' heart to have this miraculous, life-changing encounter. But we can be sure that he didn't come through the conviction of sin or conversion unless God sought him and called him. Warren Wearsby raises some speculative questions regarding uh, Zacchaeus' preparation for salvation by asking things like, uh, he wonders if Levi, remember Matthew, the tax collector who was called to be an apostle, first of all, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's simply called to follow after Jesus and observe what he was doing, and then he's one of the twelve that after a night of prayer about two and a half years into his public ministry, that Jesus designates as an apostle that he might be with him and take over leadership of the church. Was Matthew, Levi, the former publican, which is another name for tax collector, one of Zacchaeus' friends? Well, I guess that if you're an unpopular person in society because of who you are and what you do, then the only friends you're going to have are other unpopular people who do the same thing as you do. It's a possibility. Was he praying for Zacchaeus? Wearsby speculates. Had Zacchaeus become weary of wealth and started yearning for something better. He goes on to say, well, we cannot answer these questions. We can rejoice that a seeking Savior will always find a sinner who is looking for a new beginning. Are you a sinner? As yet not saved? Earnestly looking for a new beginning? Well, the Savior is looking for you. He's already looking for you. 
He's looking out into your world and drawing you to himself. We also see uh, in verses 7 and 8 that Zacchaeus' personal dignity and that sense of respect that some of us just uh, revel in and enjoy so much, that didn't matter. Uh, There's a song being written, I don't think we've ever sung it here in Charlotte Chapel, but it it talks about the sort of things that that people do sometimes in charismatic worship to to honour the Lord and the words of the song say something about the fact that I'm prepared to become much more undignified than this. Much more undignified than this. This man had a position of respect and, and, and he was there in the community as someone who was held up. He could have easily have let his dignity get in the way of seeing Jesus. But like Bartimaeus, the crowd here was an obvious obstacle for this wee man. Uh, if you're not from Scotland, wee man means small man. But he found a way around, or should I say above, his physical limitations. Do you know, in the spiritual sense, all of us are we men. For none of us measure up to the standards God has said as Romans 3 and 23 says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God last week um, we saw in the attitude of the rich young ruler that like so many self-sufficient people today he was barred from entering the kingdom of God see he trusted in his earthly wealth and possessions leaving no room for God to enter and to possess his life because that's what salvation really is it's not about saying oh please God come in and around my life and and be my saviour it's about realising there's got to be a total abandonment not only confessing our sin and invitation but to allow God to possess us to own everything about us and direct everything about us that's what true salvation is the reference there to um, Zacchaeus being a son of Abraham is just a reference that simply means that anyone who trusts Jesus for salvation has got nothing to do with his uh, Jewish heritage and pedigree Galatians 3 and 7 says understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham whether of Jewish or non-Jewish background somebody who is a born again Christian is in that sense a child of Abraham and we discover also that in verses 9 and 10 that Zacchaeus that he gave away what he could not keep to gain what he could not lose Most of you will recognize my paraphrasing of that famous quote from Jim Elliot, who along with four other missionaries was killed by the Ecuadorian Indians that they had gone to serve. Jim Elliot says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This wealthy man was a bankrupt sinner who needed to receive God's gift of eternal life. His acts of generosity didn't buy or earn him salvation. Let's be absolutely clear about that. Salvation is the gift of God. The only thing that can buy salvation is what Jesus did on the cross. But unlike the rich young ruler from last week's sermon, Zacchaeus is not willing to allow his wealth to be a hindrance to becoming a true disciple of Jesus. Far from holding on to what he had... um, for himself he immediately is prepared to invest it in kingdom riches for the sake of benefiting others Zacchaeus benevolence far from earning him salvation is simply evidence of the huge change that had come about when the lost sinner had been found by a seeking saviour that takes us to our final point back where we started Luke 19 verse 10 
Jesus' mission statement, if you will. Actually, of course, the whole Bible reveals to us that our God is a seeking Savior. Jesus found Bartimaeus in very similar circumstances as to how he found Zacchaeus. Both men had been under the influence and the ownership of the devil, lost and helpless in a world of darkness. Jesus came and found them, but not by the sense of just stumbling across them by chance. Some of you, and I promise I will not sing this to you, uh, but some of you may be old enough to remember Elvis Presley's song, I'm so tempted to go, "Uh uh-huh, but I won't. Um, Finders keepers, losers weepers. Now, you were all in Charlotte Chapel, YPM, and you weren't listening to that sort of stuff. Okay, that's cool. Well, I remember it. (laughs) Although this is a little boy. Part of the lyrics goes like this. The loser has to pay the score. He lost you and I found you and I'm keeping you forevermore. Presley has obviously won the love of a girl who was previously with another guy. But you know, when Jesus finds someone, it's because he has paid price for their sin. And unlike Elvis's, the loser has to pay the score. Jesus and his salvation, the finder, has to pay the score. Jesus has to pay the penalty for sin that keeps people and God separated. As Jesus was passing by, these two men, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, apparently they managed to get his attention, although we know that God was actually seeking them first. Their encounter with Jesus changed their lives forever. What about you? These two men, economically, academically, socially, poles apart within their own society, yet equally lost. Their only hope, their only hope, was to get Jesus' attention as he passed by. And you know, as I look at this, for these guys, it was probably their one and only hope. So let me challenge you this morning, as we come to this. As Jesus walks past you this morning, and looks straight at you, What are you going to do with his invitation to put your trust in him and let him become Lord of your life? Do you, like Bartimaeus, realize that only Jesus has the power to meet your need, whatever that need might be? Do you need to cry out to God for mercy? Or are you more like Zacchaeus, just curious, but still very lonely and isolated despite your obvious earthly prosperity or social position? Do you need to confess your sin of greed and injustice, self-sufficiency, and allow Jesus to make you into a new and altogether different person? You know, Jesus wants no less. Bring salvation to you and to your house. But you must want it too. The seeking Saviour is a gentle Saviour who will not impose or force himself upon you 
but he will come at the moment of invitation. Are you lost? Then this is really good news of great joy for you. For Jesus is seeking you. Seeking you to find you. Let's pray.